My next guest truly knows the definition of perseverance. Growing up gay in Syria, he eventually fled the turmoil in that country for South Africa. Once here, he sold fruit and vegetables on the streets of Cape Town to earn a living while studying. These days, he's a successful interior designer and blogger. His blog, The Diary of a Gay Arab Man, aims to raise awareness of what is happening in the Arab queer community and help queer people of colour overcome the struggles that they face throughout their lives. His is a quite inspiring story. Let's welcome Adnan Al. Museli to the show. Adnan, welcome to Late Nights on Cape Talk. It really is a pleasure to have you in and to come and chat to us about your incredible story. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are originally from Syria. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit, before we talk about Syria and its multitude of, of issues, let's talk about the family that you come from. What kind of family do you come from? I have three sisters and um, my parents. Um, we are from Damascus, um, born and raised um, we actually lived between Damascus and Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, my family is not your typical Arab family. Ah, oh, now what does that mean? Um, I wouldn't say they are liberal, but they're not necessarily religious or extremely conservative. Right. But definitely more than I am. Okay. Um, they're amazing people. Um, yeah, did I answer the question? Yes, you <laughs> yeah. did, yeah. yeah. What... When one thinks of Syria, we often think about the pictures that we've seen on the news for a number mm. of years um, as as quite a violent place, but it's also a beautiful place. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Syria is one of the most beautiful countries in the world, and um, when I think of Syria, I don't think of the destruction or the war, even though I've lived through that. Um, Syria is such a peaceful country, and before the war, we didn't have... We had a really good life. We didn't have an amazing life with... Um, there, we had problems, we had political issues, but we had a really good life. People lived happy, um, lived happy in ignorance, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. And, um, it was a very peaceful country, um, very green. Damascus is very old. It's the oldest capital city in the world. Mm. I love to say that fact every time. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful city. It's, um, yeah. So, tell me, at what age were you first aware of the issues that were going on in your country? Um, I, You know what? It's funny. I feel like everybody knew that we had political issues and racial issues and religious issues in our country, but nobody ever talked about it. Mm. So, me growing up, I've never heard my parents talk about political issues in, in Syria. And that's because the Syrian regime or the Syrian government is so good at silencing people that even in your own home, you wouldn't even dare to discuss these issues mm. or address an issue that the government, you know, has um, gotten wrong. Mm. Um, and only in 2011, when I was 18, when I just graduated high school, is that when, you know, we started, the, when the revolution was happening in the Middle East, um, people like me, young people started asking questions. Yeah. Like, why have you been the president for 42 years? Um, why can't we have freedom of speech? Why, uh, you know, a billion question. And um, the homophobia wasn't even one of them because that is um, on a bigger, in the bigger scheme of things than like in the Middle East. And is it something that is so, so frowned upon and so underground that it sort of didn't, hadn't even had an opportunity to get to the surface? Never. No. Never. Hmm. I wished it when I would go on protests 
when I used to go on protests in Damascus, I wished it, but I would never say it or or shout it. We all, um, you know, called for freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of living. But nobody ever held the rainbow flag or even dared to think about it. Maybe um, Syrian people overseas, but never in Syria, never. At what age were you when you first shared with another person that you were gay? And who was it? Um, it was my cousin, who was also gay, but I didn't know he's gay when I came out to him. Okay. I think I was um, nine, ten. And were you scared? Did you know that the the consensus around members of the LGBTQI plus community was as it was? Absolutely. I mean, I remember ever since I was a kid, we'd go to the mosque and the only thing we'd hear is that people like me are going to hell. Yeah. And I didn't have the courage to ask questions, not to my parents, nor to anyone. So you're basically being brainwashed your entire life that, you know, LGBTI people go to hell because of who they are. And they don't necessarily give you... Um, they tell you this is wrong and this is incorrect, but they never tell you this is what you do to not be gay. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So it's kind of like, this is who you are, you're going to hell, and we're not going to talk about it. And um, I didn't, I wasn't able to process what was going on in my head for a long time. And I thought I was a monster for the longest time. I mean, I've had crushes on classmates in, in, in school in an innocent way. Um, but I couldn't ever, you know, analyze it or unpack it. And um, I think that's very damaging. Yeah. I mean, not only to oneself, but also to the society. And also, something else happened to you that was incredibly damaging when you were 13. Will you talk about that? Yes, I was um, I was um, sexually molested. Um, I think a lot of people um, also avoid the word raped. Um, I don't... I, it, it is that. Yeah. And um, I went through a horrible experience where a person who um, was much older than me, um, he blackmailed me for two years. Um, so he basically um, said if he if I wouldn't do what he wanted, he'd out me to um, my family. Mm. And the Arab community is very small, and people are people know each other. So he knew where I lived. He knew my family. He didn't. Um, he stalked me for a long time, and um, he followed me around. He knew where I studied. I couldn't tell anybody again. Um, How did you process that at the time? At the age of 13, you're a young man heading into adolescence. You've got these conflicted, um, well, not, not even conflicted, one very single um, a, a idea of what it means for you to be gay. You're then mm. raped by an older man. Mm. What on earth was going on in your head at that time? Fear. Mm. That's it. Um, I just wanted, I just didn't, I was so scared of being outed that anything else was better. Yeah. And that is the danger that I was telling you about on how not having the space and the platform to come out or to tell your parents, I have a thing for boys. I felt, um, you, you know, the way he blackmailed me wasn't, um, it wasn't, I'm going to tell your parents you're gay. He knew I was gay because... No straight man that didn't have these questions would fall for something so stupid or naive like getting into a, a, a stranger's car. 
so I think um I was I was I was for two years straight I was scared. I lived in fear. I had and still have constant nightmares about the situation. I just wanted people not to know that I have been molested or I have been raped by this person and I wanted to protect the family's reputation because that's what they tell you. You know, it's um the family's reputation, your reputation, your dignity. People can't know. And um it was a lot to take on and I decided to take it on 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 my own because besides the fact that I knew I was gay and feared of people knowing that, we had our own family issues. Mm-hmm. My parents' relationship was it wasn't a good relationship. Um so I didn't want to burden my mom or my family. And I think at that age that's what you think you're what you think you're doing is the right thing by mm-hmm. keeping that to yourself and not um, asking for help where you should be. Yeah. If you are just joining us, I'm in studio with Adnan Al-Museli, who is uh, talking to us about his incredible story uh, growing up in Syria, fleeing Syria to come to South Africa. And we'll get to uh, how it was that you came to be in South Africa in, in just a moment. Um, when you realize that your being gay wasn't going away and that you were going to have to make a decision as to either live the rest of your life a lie or to come out what at what age were you then and and how did that happen and where were you living i was in damascus i was about 19 um that's when the war was you know still quite young it was uh, one year old when the war started in damascus and i think the more death i saw and the more the more what was like life like on a day-to-day basis just put paint a picture for us if you will um Damascus is a cold city in winter. That's when the war started. Um, in the beginning, we were terrified. In the beginning, um, you know, we heard um, shotguns, we heard bombings, but they were all in areas that were far away from the main city. We'd still be scared. I mean, I remember nights and days where my cousins and myself, we'd hide in the bathtub for no apparent reason. But we'd just hide for hours and just sit there, wait for the bombing to stop. We'd hide under the bed. We'd never sleep alone. We'd always sleep together. And we've always said that if we died, we wanted to die together. And being so unfamiliar to that fear, I mean, the war happened very quickly. It escalated extremely, extremely quickly. And we didn't, we weren't really allowed um, the time to process that, okay, this is going on. Mm. All we needed to know is to be safe and to be as far away from these um, bombings or the fights between the rebels and the government. Um, life was scary. I mean, I remember we would be at work, we'd hear a bombing. Um, you'd, you'd feel like the whole glass in the building shake. Um, people were crying all the time. People were scared. Everything. And I mean, you'd walk in the street and all you can see is people like fearing. Nobody would talk to each other. Everybody would literally go from home to work and from work to home. In the beginning, nobody went to work, I think for about three months. Um, with time, people, I think that is, that was the saddest part for me. Um, seeing people being kind of jaded 
and I was, was one it of them. It was almost that you begin to normalize what yeah. you're going through. Yeah. It's similar to, and, um, it's similar to here when you hear somebody getting, um, mugged or their car getting, um, what do you call it? Broken, Jacks, in, yeah. broken into. Mm. Um, it's like you are like, that sucks, but you've heard that so many yeah. times. And that's what happens. Um, in the beginning, we would be terrified by hearing, you know, five people were murdered or, or dead by a, um, a bombing or an explosion. But with time, those five people become 15 and these 15 people become 50. And then with time, when you hear that, you know, 100 and something people died in a, um, uh, from a helicopter that's, you know, um, targeted an area, you'd be like, well, thank God it's not 200. What did you think, think that the outside world was thinking? Because I remember sitting and watching those news reports and there's something that happens to us as people. And I don't know whether it is proximity that does it or, or, or what it is, but something happens when particularly, and this happened also during the Iraq war, when you hear mm. these quantities of numbers mm. and as human beings, if it happened on your doorstep, you would be absolutely mm. horrified. But numbers just become numbers mm. in that place. There. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think the media also played a huge role in the Syrian war. Uh, I remember when we'd watch TV, um, we'd see that in the area that we'd be living in, the media would say, you know, there's a big fight between the rebels and the government, and there wasn't. Um, other days, you would watch the TV or the news channel, and um, there would be a, a huge, you know... Um, um, I don't, I'm trying to find the English word, mm. um, like, um, between the government and the, um, the rebels or the f Syrian free army. At that time, they called themselves that. Um, and it wouldn't be televised. So I think the media chooses what to show and it also chooses when to show it. And it played a big role to the outside world when they saw what was happening wasn't really the truth. Mm. Um, it wasn't necessarily safer or more dangerous. It just wasn't the truth. Mm. And um, a lot of the stories that were supposed to be covered weren't. And a lot of the stories that were covered weren't true. So um, it's difficult to kind of explain that to somebody that wasn't there. Was there a sense of isolation that you were on your own in this experience? I don't mean you personally, but mm. as a country that this is happening to us and we've become so far removed from Absolutely. the rest of the world. Absolutely. And we've seen this happen to Palestine. We've, yeah. this, we've seen this happen to Iraq. We've seen this happen to Iran. So we knew what was going on. We knew that this was not going to pass quickly. And we knew that we were trapped because we were now a... Um, a country that's, um, uh, it's like a battlefield for several countries also that played a mm -hmm. role in, in the Syrian war. And you couldn't really do anything about it. What, what I personally did is went on protests, but that didn't really help. Take us back to that time. You're 19 years old. You're gay. You're terrified, but you come out. Um, I think something in me just, felt like nothing nothing's going to change the world unless i do something about it or necessarily my world um and i felt like with all the death that was around me um a lot of my emotions were numb to mm. be honest and i felt like it felt like this is the end of the world mm. so when i came out i f didn't really um, 
plan for life ahead because it felt for me, I'm going to die. I mean, I want to die in my truth. I want to die mm. and I want people to know who I am. I didn't really have, I didn't have a plan for, okay, what's next? What happens after you come out? And um, that wasn't necessarily the smartest move. But again, when you are in war, when you wake up to the sound of shootings and bombings and people dying, a lot of your feelings die with that. Mm. And um, it was definitely um, brave, but not necessarily smart. Right. Um, <laughs> like yeah. so many of the decisions we make in life. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't regret it at all. Um, I just, if I'd go back in time, I don't, now living in a country where it's safe, my mentality is back to normal. Right. But if I look back at the decisions that I made back then, it all seemed very irrational and very um, irresponsible. What was the response from those around you? Shock, mostly, and denial. And um, a lot of... Um, Had you been playing the straight guy? To oh, yeah, my whole life. And, like, dating and doing all that kind of stuff. Or I had... if you managed to avoid <laughs> dating, but still were doing, like, the kind of, the, the butch straight, straight dude. I had, no, I had the straight dude um, game on very well. For sure. <laughs> I had an imaginary girlfriend who's oh. actually, her name was Sarah. <gasps> yeah. Meaning princess for those yeah. who don't know. <laughs> um, we had a great relationship. <laughs> we never had a fight. Um yeah, we, I had a, I lied to people. I told them I'm seeing a girl, you know, nobody's allowed to see. And, you know, luckily for me at that, well, still now, the Middle Eastern culture is very closed. Absolutely. So I would tell them, like, I can't show you a picture or anything because yeah. she's very religious. And they would understand that. Yeah. And um, I had that game on for my entire high school years and middle school. Um I was, uh, yeah, I was a very good straight. You and Sarah were, 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 were doing we the worked. straight tango. We worked. I hope she's well, wherever I, she is. Wherever she, wherever she may be listening in today. Yeah, okay, was, at, yeah. at what point, at what age did you finally say, I have to leave? And and would you would you say that you left Syria or you fled Syria? I fled Syria. Yeah. I would never leave Syria if mm. I had the option. I would, I love my country and mm. I'm sure everybody does. And um, nobody wants to go live in another country, no matter how beautiful and good the country is. Of course. Nobody wants to live alone somewhere else, um, you know, living in a new community, um, learning new cultures or like learning new habits. Um, nobody wants that. And I fled Syria um, when I realized that as much as I was there for my country, my country wasn't there for me. Painful. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a very hard realization and it made me very bitter. Mm. It made me a bitter person because I felt like I had no space and I had no room to grow. Um, and I knew, I knew I had to leave. Something in me felt like this is, you're going to die here if not physically you, this place is going to end you emotionally. Yeah. And I knew that something better was waiting for me somewhere else. I didn't know where that somewhere else is. And I didn't know what to do to get there. But I just knew that something better definitely is waiting for me out there. And there's definitely a community that wants me to live the person that I the am mm. without any consequences. There has to be that place. And that place has turned out to be South Africa. What? Yes. what why South Africa? Uh, um... I don't know. 
<laughs> I applied for many embassies um, when I was back home in Damascus, and South Africa was the first to get back to me. I still remember the ambassador who was amazing. He was such a good, such a good person. He heard my story, and I'm sure he heard hundreds. And I, I went to his office. I went to the embassy. I remember and I told them I need to speak with the ambassador, and they told me that's not possible. So I said, well, you know, I just want to try if you could just please tell them that this is urgent. What helped me is that I had um, better English skills than most people back home. So um, that gave me an advantage because I was able to communicate with him. Mm. And um, I think two days or three days later, he called me personally and um, he told me, like, uh, are you free to, like, when are you free? And I meant to see him. I went to see him, sorry, and um, I told him my story. I told him I'm gay and um, I can be I can be um, a good contribution to your economy, to your country, and I want to go there and I want to be that. And I want you to please give me the opportunity to have a normal life. Mm. That's all that I ask for. And um, I remember he said he'll see what he can do. And um, he took my passport. And a week later, I think he played with my feelings. <laughs> a week later, he called me. He said, if you're free, please come by. And I, I went to his, um, I went to the embassy. And when he gave me that passport that had the visa in it, I was in so much shock. I honestly had no idea what just happened. I wanted to hug him, but I was like, please be professional. <laughs> So I thanked him a lot and I, I was crying as I did. And um, when I left the embassy, I remember standing on that pavement and I looked around me and I just, there was like this overwhelming feeling of sadness and joy looking around, knowing, being the only person that knew that I'm not going to be here for long, mm. but also that, you know, killed me mm. because I knew that these are my final days. Um then I had to get the plane ticket, which I didn't have the money for. So I went online and um, I asked people. I um, I remember um, there's an American f- who became a friend of mine now. He booked me the ticket um, to Cape Town. Wow. And uh, for with no, re- no return, um, I told him my story. I told many people my story and many people probably thought I was crazy, which I was. Um, and... Um, yeah, he booked me the ticket with, he just said, go build your life. He actually came to visit me in 2016. Yeah, in 2016. Wow. And I, that was the first time I met him. That person changed my life and I, I've never, I don't, I didn't know who he was. And you came here when? I came here in January 2015. Okay. Mm. So you've been here for four years. Yeah. Have we lived up to your expectations or did you not have any expectations? Because I, you could have ended up <laughs> anywhere. I didn't have any expectations, but I, all I knew, I mean, I researched South Africa and I researched Cape Town and I read what I was able to understand. Did anything put you off? Because as much as we are a beautiful country, <laughs> we too have our own problems. Um, no, I was so excited. Mm. I was so excited to be, well, to come to Cape Town. I was over the moon and I mean, I read about the political and racial and etc. issues, yeah. but that didn't scare me. I mean, I came from Syria. Yeah. So I was like, it's fine. I can deal with this. This yeah, is something you know this. that I can. Yeah. It's yeah. familiar. Yeah. Tell us about your first few days in South Africa. Oh, my God. I remember flying over Cape Town um, for the I came through um, Dubai and then Johannesburg from Johannesburg to Cape Town. And I remember when I was flying over Cape Town, all I can see is 
those beautiful green mountains and the um the ocean and the horizon um i was so scared and so happy and i felt like this could be the beginning of something really beautiful or really really bad wow and um i could either you know make the best of my time here or i can just waste my time and not build a a, a future that's beneficial to me and mm. to this country are you a religious person no do you have a do you have a faith no so you weren't sort of sitting there thinking please god <laughs> no <laughs> make this I work wasn't. out no it no. was just wow i just felt like it is your responsibility wow. you have this one chance i i had the option um to go onto one of these boats that yeah. go from one country to another and then eventually to europe or to take the flight to cape town so told myself you have one chance to be a good contribution to this country and um this is going to be hard and it was and um you sold fruit and vegetables for I some did. time i did where i mean what <laughs> i um in town i walked around with a basket <laughs> full of fruits and vegetables and i went it was so d- i don't know what i was thinking to be honest i mean i just thought that you know that's what everybody likes <laughs> So I went to people and I went to restaurants actually and um told them if there if you have like anything missing missing that you want in your kitchen some people probably thought I was insane you not sure and um also my <laughs> English <possible>. was <laughs> my English wasn't as good as or I wasn't fluent right. I I could understand you yeah. um but I wouldn't be able to communicate like you like know like we are now yeah mm and um i started i started a lot um and some people bought actually from me <laughs> they bought they did they did and thank you if you're listening <laughs> um if you bought fruits and vegetables from a crazy <laughs> syrian person thank you wherever you are um yeah i just started meeting people and i knew the only way to make it was to um build connections and let people know that i'm here and what had you uh, studied in syria um psychology. Right. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is almost in a way ties into what you do today. I think yeah. it does tie in quite quite significantly actually yeah. because these days you're an interior designer. Mm. How did you go from selling flogging fruit and veg to people in <laughs> on Long Street to to now being this fabulous interior designer? Thank you. Um it's it took such a long time to actually achieve i felt like the reason why i changed from psychology to interior design a obviously psychology is um harder to fund and to study um b i felt like that person that left syria is not the same person that is here right now and um i everything that i was doing in the moment needed to feel like it had no relationship with what happened in the past not because i was running from who i am but only because i felt like this is your opportunity to explore every single new aspect of who you are as a person and what you want to be in the future this is it right now and um i started from from selling fruit and veg i started waitering which i was really bad at right so i'm really sorry if i've ever served you like the wrong meal <laughs> i had no idea i mean what's the difference between merlot and you know cabernet mm. sauvignon so when people told me like can i please have a glass of merlot i just 
I'd be like, cool. Just called them something red. Yeah, they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that started. Waiting was um, was really good. I met a lot of great people um, through waitering. And um, from that, I started. Well, I waited at night and then I studied in the morning. Mm. Um, and um, that's how I basically funded my studies. And it only came with time. I had to wait about a year and a half before I was able to, you know, start to um, in, um, study. Yeah. I was getting paid, I think, 4,000 rand a month. And um, my room for the, my rent for the room that I was renting was 2,000 rand. Where were you living? I was living initially in um, Bloberg. Yes. And I take the bus to town for work. Oh my God, it was like the longest journey. <laughs> and um, then I moved to town um, to be closer to my work. But I only moved to town because a friend of a friend put me in connection with their friend. You know, it's this is how I, I built the person that I am today. It's mainly connections and people that were kind to me. You seem like you have an awful lot of gratitude. I am for very grateful. I am. Giving you a helping hand on the way. Absolutely. Because without that, I wouldn't be sitting right here with you. Um, and I obviously give credit to myself, but it is very important to surround yourself with people that actually care about you and they want to see you go somewhere in life. Mm. Not everybody that I met wanted that. And um, only with time you realize this is a good friend. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful for everybody in my life. What do you love now about about the job that you do and the life that you have? What and and why does interior design work so well for you and for your personality and mm. and given everything given where you've come from, why is it such a good marriage? Um I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think the opportunity to be creative firstly allows me to express who I am as a person and show people that this is my style, this is who I am. And sometimes that is more expressive than actual words. Um, and the more important reason is I feel like because my home back home was demolished and ruined, I feel that in some way I am contributing to my own karma by building other people's homes and making them look beautiful and making them mm. feel good where they are right now in hoping that one day I'd go back home and feel the same. So I feel like it's a good feeling to make people feel at home. And um, one day I think, well, I, I'm sure one day that I'll feel that again. Where is home for you? Damascus, always. Mm. As much as I love Cape Town. But I'll always feel that, you know, the end goal, maybe one day if um, I can be um, who I am with my sexuality and everything that comes with it back home, I will definitely go back home. Mm. But I don't see that happening in my lifetime. Sure. Yeah. Maybe that'll happen for my kids. Yours is the most extraordinary story and you have Thank you. <laughs> the most incredible spirit and bravery. I just think it's Thank it, it really Thank is you. phenomenal. Would you consider writing a book? Um there is something in the works. Mm. Yeah. Um I am um taking there's a publisher that read my blog and she's interested in turning it into a book, but she first wants me to take a course in professional writing. A South African publisher? Yeah. Good. And um so I'm going to do that first 
um, because the blog is very informal, mm. um, and um, we'll take it from there. But if it, if I don't end up publishing a book, I'm still happy. What would that book be called? Um, God, I thought about that so many times. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I think it'll be called like my blog. I think. Um, and the blog is just remind people. Mm. Diary of a Gay Arab Man. Diary of a Gay Arab Man. That is yeah. a fantastic blog and book title. Yeah, I think Isn't it's going to be that. Great book title. Yeah, I think it's going to be that. I think it's intriguing for people to. I think, I mean, one of the reasons why I published the blog is because I felt like there is nobody out there that is the voice for um, LGBTI or queer Arab people. Mm. Nobody out there True. talks about the issues that we go through as. A, people of color, B, Arab people, mm. um, as queer folks. And um, I wanted that. And I wanted anybody who is 13, 14, 15 years old right now back home to have a platform that they can relate to. Mm. Because if I was 13 years old, when I was 13 years old, had there been a platform like this website or had there been any other platform, I would have gotten help and I would have known that I'm not the only one. But I really thought I was the only one that, you know, had these gay thoughts. Mm. Um, so it's one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing um, in my own way and in my humble voice, trying to advocate for the rights for these people that don't have anybody that can speak for them. Mm. So... Um, as I said again, it really is a, a phenomenal story and you are a, a, an example of what it means to be a, a survivor and incredibly brave and it has been our absolute pleasure to have you Thank in the Thank you so with much. Us. Thank you for having me.